Well, folks, here we are, episode 50. I did not expect to get to 50 episodes. I have to be quite honest. When I first set out on this journey over a year ago, I have stuck with it primarily because of the feedback I've received from so many of you and the support I've got. And also the job of doing this podcast is really tremendous. It doesn't pay any money. Many of you always ask me, how does it monetize itself? Well, it doesn't. It's a labor of love, but it has been something that has given me a purpose, which I never expected. And I have got to meet so many amazing people. Thank you to all of my guests over the past 50 episodes who shared their inspiring stories and wisdom. It has been something that has changed my life and my outlook on so many things and in so many ways. We're going to keep going with it, I think, for the foreseeable. I have this idea that at the end of maybe when we have 100 episodes in the can, I think this could be a useful resource for career guidance teachers. I find it astonishing to this day that so many kids reach the end of their teenage years without any real idea of where they want to go and what they want to be in life. So many of the guests I've had on my podcast have one thing in common, and that is that from a very early age, they possibly saw the flaws in that thinking and struck out on their own, and that to many of them has made all the difference. To those of you who listen, the best thing you can do for me is to continue to like and share it on your Facebook pages or Twitter. It'd be really great if some of you could leave some reviews on iTunes and Stitcher or whatever podcast server that you you use. Those things apparently are important. I'd also like to thank a website called Audible Feast. They're at audiblefeast.com. They were one of the first people to spot my podcast and they gave it a very nice review back in March of last year. They also shocked me really by giving me a place on their best new podcasts of 2016 list and the episode with Tavis Sage Eaton was nominated one of their top 50 I think podcasts of the year that was a surprise and a bolt out of the blue and gave me the sort of impetus to keep going with it uh, which I intend to do so to celebrate the 50th episode I have a family member the first family member to appear in a pint with Shawnee B. She is my sister. Her name is Georgina Boyle, though she does go by the name of George and doesn't like the fact that I seem to continually find it difficult to call her George Boyle. I don't call her George Boyle because my father's name is George Boyle, and to me that's confusing, although I did read somewhere that George Foreman, the boxer, has about nine children, and he decided he was going to name them all George, and they seem to have managed to survive life. But anyway, George Boyle is somebody who I'm very proud to have as a sister. She is a woman whose story is an inspiration for anyone who has been on the floor from economic crisis. She lost a job uh, just when she had two children. Uh, her husband lost a job during the Irish economic collapse about eight years ago, and she got up off her feet and pulled herself up by the bootstraps and did something about it. That's the story you're primarily going to hear today. So without further ado, I give you my sis, George Boyle. Hi, Sean. I have George on the show because she is a, has a good story to tell about what happens when everything goes belly up and you're left floundering and you have to pick yourself up off the ground and 
my sister and all the people in Fumbly Exchange did a very good job of doing that when the Irish economy collapsed around us. George's story is very well known in Ireland and she's probably going to have to tell it all again here, which she's done many times before. But essentially, my sister was an architect. So let's start with you getting into architecture and why and what happened. We all kind of were encouraged to think at school about the pathway to the job for life. Our dad being an engineer and our mum being an artist, I kind of put the two into a pot and stirred it around and out came architect. So I said, I'll give that a go. Proceeded to pretty much hate college but I was like I'm either going to fail this spectacularly in which case I'm done with it or I'm going to do really well at it in which case I'm done with it (laughs) because I have proved to myself I can conquer it and I never did either so I kind of mulloched along somewhere in the middle somewhere around the pass point I, I like that. You had, a, you, had a, you had a great idea for your uh, thesis I mm. back in the day. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I was very interested in the circus. So I decided to do a winter home for Fawcett Circus and I picked a little island off Hoth called Ireland's Eye and I designed a boat to take the circus out there. The island became like a theme park almost of all the different follies with all the different disciplines the circus gets up to and cages for animals and they were allowed to kind of roam around and... It wasn't taken so very seriously. Island. It's a deserted island right. at the moment, but it wasn't taken very seriously by my by tutors. And one of them would actually make a big fuss about walking out every time my crit came on. And at the very end of fifth year then, again, I kind of came out at the bottom of the pile of passes. And then the external examiners came in and they pulled me right up to third in the class, which was kind of nice. <laughs> Did anything ever happen to that? No, but I sort of look back on it recently and I think, God, it might be my, my best work. You see, I, I, I think there was just a sense that I wasn't embracing realism, you know, that I was kind of a fantasist. And, mm. Well, what other time are you going to do that other than in college? And the great thing about it was that Marie O'Leary, where I spent 20 working years, that was one of the external examiners who was there. Sean O'Leary was there. Mm. So they were the biggest architecture firm in Dublin, right? Yeah, they were in the top 60 in the world. They were probably in the top 15 in Europe. And Ireland was booming. Booming, going kind of gangbusters from around. I started with them in 95, and then they went into bonkers growth for about five to six years. Things started to look a little bit shaky in 2008, but really right up to the wall, everybody thought there was no chance of anything going wrong. I used to talk to you a bit about this because the collapse of the Irish economy, for those who don't know about it, was uh, monstrous. It was fueled by a property boom primarily. Mm. Everyone was getting out of control here. We're normally a nation that is best when we're underdogs and we yeah. haven't got two pennies to rub together. But I was coming home from overseas and seeing people talking about buying houses in Lithuania and Latvia and countries that didn't even know existed five years ago. It wasn't that pleasant a place to come and visit at the time because it was just consumed by greed and it was the first time I'd seen my home city and my home country in in that shape. But the collapse when it happened, and again, I always used to say this to you guys, like the idea that architecture in a housing boom is a canary in the mine, Mm. I just found it astonishing that, 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 that nobody was seeing writing on the wall, and the, what was it, just bravado? or It was denial. 
So I think that the property boom was fueled, yes, by greed. I think people got on the bandwagon because they were encouraged to. I think people were naive and I think it was less an embrace of greed than a kind of a sense of the time has come and we need to join the Western world and stand up and be like the others. And I mean, when you look at big cities like in China and Singapore, these places, you know, like how rapidly they grew in the Middle East as well, you know, there was... There was no sense that it had to stop, you know, I mean, there is plenty of evidence that these things can continue and be sustainable. But the problem in Dublin was that there was no regulation, there was no control. People were getting letters in their door saying, you know, you need to buy a house and here's how we're going to give you 100% mortgage. And it was utterly irresponsible governance. So, for example, in many architectural practices, suddenly you weren't getting paid, but you'd made commitments, and the commitments you had under contract with the government, with big developers, with all sorts of people. The naivety of our peers was that they felt that would protect them. There were hundreds of thousands of apartments built all over the country, and the architects were never paid for those. So, you know, you would say a good business person would stop work as soon as the first check bounces, but architects aren't good business people. But then tell me what happened to Murray O'Leary during this time. So in the space of probably a year, Murray O'Leary went from a very healthy, profitable company to a company heavily in debt, but the debts were written down by the promises. And then the promises just turned into dust. So one day it all went bust. It was frightening, but my overwhelming sense at that point was relief. There was a relief on a personal level that... I went down with the ship, I survived to the end, (laughs) and there was a relief that what I do from now on is not dependent on someone else. I can make it myself, but I didn't know I could make it to that point. So so, so you then came up with this idea, so talk about the idea and how you came up with it. So I basically did a whole load of homework on where I might go and where I might start my own business, and I rang, the first thing I did was I rang the landlord of the building that Murray O'Leary had been in because I was the lead architect on that building. So I had a really good relationship with the landlord and Murray O'Leary was the last of six companies to evacuate. So it was 100,000 square feet, sold off the plans at 42 euro square foot back in 2005 and now empty. So it was a big deal for him. And he said I could have anywhere in the building free of charge, you know, for my new practice, which was very generous. But I kind of knew that there were so many people in the same position as myself, I thought, could we come up with something that would allow all of them to start with me if they were starting their own thing? I mean, but the collapse affected everybody. And the collapse affected everybody. And yeah, once you kind of realise what it feels like, you realise that maybe there might be wisdom in trying to just see if there's a way of empowering people to just get off the dole or get out of the depression and... I mean, to put it in perspective, friends of mine like who would have been driving Sabs and taking three or four holidays a year, some of these people ended up in, in breadline queues. Unemployment rose to 20-something percent. Nationwide, uh, nationwide, and among architects it was over 85%. The majority of, of architectural practices shut down. So I thought that maybe we could f- collect a, a group, help them start again, start something new, or restructure what they had, or just bring an energy together to tease out what the challenges were. And yeah, casting the net a bit broader than architecture, but I thought the creative force was really important because 
you need people who are kind of capable of initiating and leading. That was the first thing, was getting that group idea right. And then the landlord had offered me the free space, and I said, well, what about free space for 30? And he said, yeah, no problem. We'll run it for a few months. And then I did a lot of homework on it, and I realised that there's a lot of free spaces with universities and all across the Netherlands and Denmark and places like that. But they tend to be just places where people moan and complain about how bad things are over coffee and, you know, they don't really tend to have a great success rate and neither do incubators and neither do accelerators and serviced office spaces, you know, they're all a bit soulless. So we wanted to create a character and a mandate. What is this thing going to do? And then we also wanted to create a price point that was just out of reach. So this is basically aimed at people who've lost their job, want to get back up on their feet, want a place to go with like minds and they Mm. have to pay a weekly sub to go there. So how much was it to go in there at the start? Two fifty, X that a month. A month, okay, yeah, it's pretty good. That it's included, really good. But that included. That included. So yeah, that was the other thing: is to take away the overheads that would make finding a place very discouraging. So we included all your utility bills, your insurance, your housekeeping. We brought in pro bono services then from tax accountants and startup businesses and legal and all those things to give people advice and help them out. And people were very willing to do this because, you know, the people who were surviving were realising that I suppose they needed to give something back. They were feeling guilty. <laughs> and <laughs> how many of you pulled this together? So I sent around a manifesto then. I, I rang Dublin City Council and I rang the institute heads of the different design organisations to see what they give me support and they were like oh we've no money and I said I'm not looking for money can I use your logo on my documents if I write a document and they said oh of course yes we'd be delighted I sent a call to arms document with an expression of interest no strings attached fill out the form send it back to me so I got about 40 responses from that and then I called a meeting and about 60 people came to the meeting and out of that about 10 people signed up there and then then we had to populate the office and put in furniture and do all that kind of stuff. Where did you get the money for the furniture? We didn't. We went skipping and uh, yeah, liquidator shopping and we got... So in the old offices, the old architecture practice, the liquidator sold everything. Even like I had left a hat up there and they even had a price on the hat. Uh-huh. But they didn't have any price on the fitted furniture, which had been probably the piece de resistance of the whole office. You know, beautiful birch ply handmade furniture attached to the walls and for the liquidator that was part of the shell and core but a gaming company came in then to no not a gaming company recruitment company came in to take over the space and they didn't want any of that stuff so the landlord was going to hire a skip to get rid of it and we said we'd dismantle it and And how did it look after a year what was the what was your progress within six months we had 60 businesses you caught the attention of the media because there was yeah. no good news stories in Ireland, right? So one of the co-founders is Kieran Ferry, and his father started an online newspaper, which is like unheard of in those days, called The Irish Emigrant. The Wall Street Journal in New York were doing a six-piece documentary about Europe, and they had done their Iceland and their Spain and their Italy and their Greece a video documentary with riots and bombs and all sorts of things going on and they came to Ireland and they rang the Irish immigrants and said we need to know about all the people who are leaving Ireland and how bad it is here and all that stuff and in good old Irish fashion Liam Ferry said it's not all that bad now you know <laughs> talk to my son they've started this thing up in Dublin 8 and it's in the Liberties the heart of gritty Dublin and that's where the, the working class came from he did a 
a piece about Ireland and how, de- how desperate it was. But it ended with fumbly exchange and how we were the scrappy little workhorse of Europe and we were going to pull Europe out of recession. <laughs> that didn't do us any harm. When you, when you realised the idea you had, the idea was a workspace like you have in many cities around the world, full of creative people who are usually sole traders, one or two person operators. Yeah. But you had a little twist on that, right, where they would work sort of together? Yeah, so our, our mantra is making work full stop together so the making work part is about actually invention you know finding opportunity where people don't think it exists and that's my definition of innovation anyway i think what really set fumbly exchange apart was we had the bit to help our colleagues scale we had the bit about creative collaboration so the creative bit is getting the right kind of mindset and the collaboration is getting people to showcase each other's skills to each other so we've all sorts of programs that help to support really integrating the different skill sets into the group but then we have the outside the room piece which is about using our community to help vacancy and dereliction and antisocial behavior and neighborhood problems outside the room so we would run exhibitions and festivals and barbecues and parties and all that kind of stuff trying to help people get out of that defensive sort of protect what i've got left mentality and seeking for a mindset positive upbeat yeah self-starter yeah and we never we never advertise and that's a really important part of it because if we were advertising we would be getting anybody but by not advertising people come because they've heard about it so they're kind of almost pre 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 approved (laughs) and then Guinness stepped in and you won some big award right Kieran Rose this guy in Dublin City Council was a great advocate and he nominated me for this social entrepreneur of the year award so Diageo was recognizing people who do good and 2011 we won that award so all of this kind of led to I suppose that we had a profile all the time really out there without ever seeking it and all the politicians came as sniffing as well right oh yeah so we um, before we won the Guinness award the only money we had was a little kitty for milk money because the subscription charge went straight to the landlord so when we won the award it was a couple of bob came with that and we used that to build the brand and the identity and the logo and the website done by people in the exchange Mm -hmm. yeah and we registered it and we launched it and when we launched it they couldn't come quick enough the politicians because it was probably the only good news story in town and at that stage, we were 60 strong, and it was, it was incredible. And because we were doing all these community and neighbourhood events, it was a constant magnet. I mean, we knew we'd arrived when the Olympic flame was travelling through Dublin, and it stopped at Fumbly Lane. But then your very friendly landlord caused some problems. Is that the next chapter in this Yeah, story? so uh, because of the magnet effect, um, all these new crazy hipster companies were coming down going, we want to be part of this, we want to settle in near you. So our landlord's 100,000 square foot of empty accommodation was filling up fast. Mm -hmm. But you were paying him, right? We were paying him, but we had no lease. So we had no protection. And to be honest, it's always a matter of personalities. So NAMA took over the landlord company. So explain what NAMA is. So NAMA was an organisation set up by the Irish government to become like a bad bank. So basically NAMA took out of the good, in quotation mark, banks, all the bad debt, 
it sought to reconcile them as best it could and then sell the assets. So one of the properties that it took over was our landlord's company and all our landlord contacts were let go. Because <laughs> so, this was three, so you were three years in roughly? Three years in, and yeah. how many people then? We had about 70 businesses then. Right. So you had to move? Yeah, so they came. Basically, we knew we had to move, so we made an application to government for an adjacent property, which was also in the landlord's tenure, and we we, we were granted over 200,000 to do up the property by government, and the landlord had made the application for us. But the day, a couple of days before the grant was due in, the landlord let it to somebody else. Nice. Yeah. So they then told us that uh, there was somebody with their eye on our premises, and that we had to move. They gave us three months notice. I found another place in Stevens Green. We had signed everything over and had paid our utility connection costs and changed addresses on our brochures and everything. Aircom were a subtenant, we're a tenant. We were going to be subtenants and uh, the Royal College of Surgeons decided they wanted the building back. So they... So was this a factor of the sort of early shoots of recovery and people starting to sniff, oh, we might be able to get things going again. So businesses like yours go, thanks for that, but we're It's, moving. yeah, I think it's a factor of creative clusters since, like, ever. You know, I mean, if you go back to Renaissance times, Temple Bar here, the same thing, you know, I mean, um, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago. You get a little creative cluster, it generates a kind of interest level. Richard Florida, there's this guy who talks about it all the time, the creative class. It's a magnet, everybody wants a piece of it and then the property value goes up and it kind of, yeah, so it shoves out. So we knew then we had to get a bit more savvy, so we got pro bono legal aid thanks to Social Entrepreneurs Ireland, we won that award as well. We got a tenure lease on this place. So basically what happened was Royal College of Surgeons kicked us out of Stevens Green. Aircom, in fairness to them, were appalled and they had this premises in the middle of the city, which was in really rag order. It was a former claims office and it had tiny little rooms with really low ceilings. Which we're in right now. Yeah, and swipe card Very access. Ceilings, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of at the end of my tether at that point. I was burnt out, I was exhausted, and I went back to the group and I said, look, Stevens Green is gone. We have an option on this place on Dame Lane. I said, I just don't think we can do it. It's going to cost too much. It's going to cost me too much personally in terms of investment of time and everything. And Were I mean, you feeling at any stage this is all getting too hard? And That day was the closest I got to it, the day where I said... And the surgeons kicked you out. Yeah, and I found this place and I just knew it was going to be intense. Trying, I mean, at that stage we were evicted. People had gone home to their kitchen tables and stuff. So I came in here and it's I looked... It's very ironic, the, 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 the way that government jumps on, the, on your bandwagon and then yeah. it's still, all of these are government stroke yeah. institutional yeah. bodies that yeah. are kind of causing you problems. This building though was in a mess, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, the, the tiny little rooms, very, very dark. The furniture was all still here. The bins hadn't been emptied. It was like two years sitting here. There were things scurrying around. There was no electricity. We had to get around by flashlight and the fridges hadn't been emptied. It was like... Mm, boy. Really. So it was like a ghost ship that yeah. just been abandoned. Yeah. And I got up into the roof space and I looked through all the dust and I saw these beams and that's when I said, okay, this is going to be worth it. Because... Did you have to do the same? I had to go back and sell this mad, crazy idea to a very 
disillusioned bunch of people. And in fairness to them, they said, go for it. And what they had allowed us to do, the landlord, when things got horribly crazy after the surgeon's Stephen's Green property collapsed, they, la- they allowed us to collect the last two months' rent from everybody, the subscription fee. So we had that tiny little nest of, I think it was probably about 10,000. And then we went to Leo, which was the local area enterprise office, and they gave us about 30,000. And then we went to tender for this to see how much it would cost. And they said it would take about six to eight months and it would cost between 180 and 220,000. To refit it. To refit a four-story over basement building. And that was in on my birthday in 2013. We signed the lease and we were open on the 1st of August. Brilliant. And How we did you get it fixed? didn't spend more than our budget <laughs> of 38,000. Wow. <laughs> the main reason it got up and running was that um, probably the first day I came in on my own after signing the lease with the keys, I opened the door and I found myself ankle deep in water and the place was flooding and I had no idea how or why so I sat on the stairs and I had a little cry and uh, uh, thought to the this is yeah <laughs> Alice in Wonderland style this is just what I needed and the next thing I heard somebody say you look like you're in trouble and I looked up and there was this fellow standing in the building and I was like how can there be somebody in the building when we own the bu- we're lease owners now and it turned out that he used to be the Mechanelec consultant for Aircom and he just wanted to see what was going on. And within a few seconds he had made a few calls and a gang of people came in with water yeah. vacuums and he stopped the leak and he said, now my name's Brian, <laughs> what are you doing? And I told him what we were doing and he got air conditioning, plumbing, electrics and IT fit out free of charge for us, probably around 70,000 worth. Kingspan did all our insulation for us. Amazing. And so now what's it look like now? When we were in our little more comfortable zone between 2011 and 2013, we opened two sister satellite versions of Humble Exchange in Balbriggan and Waterford. And they're working very well and have also made a huge difference in regeneration in the areas that they're in. And we opened in 2014 in Italy, in Ravenna. So how how did you open in Italy? So one of my friends who was in college with me lives in Bologna. Things weren't great in Italy either. So she did the same thing and she clustered a group together and they couldn't really see how to organize their way out of it. So they found an old Garibaldi archery school and have basically sweet talked the owners there into using the premises. And I mean, with the satellites, we've had an awful lot of people talk to us about co-working and it happens at least twice a week that somebody from somewhere says they want to open something like this. But most of them don't want to kind of do the voluntary community social enterprise piece. They just want to have... You're going to keep that as part of the brand. Yeah, it's a very important part of it. What sort of lessons have you learned? What sort of advice would you give to people setting out today? Yeah, well, I mean, first thing is get a life, not a job. I just can't believe, I feel like I kind of stepped into Oz the day I came out of employment you know it was like kind of living in black and white before that and that whole thing of being parented post-parenting you know it's like your taxes are paid for you you know your laundry is practically done for you Mm. just to keep you kind of in that zone where you'll perform for the for the boss so very much I'm all about taking responsibility for your future and establish what you want early on in life now I mean that can change all the time but at least set yourself targets and goals work to a five-year plan and see how 
how much more living time you get and much more quality you can get out of your life. So after that dramatic story, what's next then? Okay, so now, I mean, everything has changed in Ireland again. It's looking like the economy in Dublin particularly is set to rocket. As an architect, the canary in the mine, great analogy because we did start to see interest, not money, but interest accumulating from about two years ago. It's turning now into a fairly healthy bottom line for most of our business members. So Fumbly Exchange is more now about new ways of working, new ways of thinking, how to incorporate integrity and authenticity into the kind of business you create. And we've also started a initiative called the FEX Academy, which is a learning program for people who are too cool for school, too busy to kind of get into third level commitments and would prefer to learn on the hoof in small parcels. So we run it like a kind of a crowdsourcing website where programs are posted and if people are interested in them they can sign up and it's a very much on-demand learning platform and we're hoping to get accreditation from the Department of Education for that. For example Trinity College have a very strong interest in innovation and entrepreneurship but they're very much a dinosaur because they're based on a 600 year old model or whatever it is so it's like a kind of a learning laboratory to kind of work hand in hand with them so I'm entrepreneur in residence at the moment in the business school in Trinity. We're actually developing a kind of phenomenon now where businesses are getting big they want to fledge out of here but they don't want to lose the connection they want to keep part of the community so we're looking at a few residents where those fledge units can be still part of the Fumbly Exchange. So it's almost kind of, I'm a master, kind of becoming a bit like a movement. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any part of you that says, well, you know, the, the, the thing that you did, which was pick yourself and a bunch of other people together as a, as a community up by the bootstraps and get something done in a, in a city and a, and a political environment that seems to just be too hard all the time. Have you any aspirations to start taking that further and maybe going and trying to change other areas of Ireland, stroke government, stroke whatever, i.e. being the mayor or something? There's been a lot of approaches from people who think maybe I should be in the political forum. But, I mean, as architect, I did the 25-year plan for Leinster House. So I've seen a lot of what goes on in there firsthand. The great thing about being this maverick on the outside who now has the respect of these organisations is I can pretty much say what I think without being cut down at the knees. If I go into a system like that, I'm going into an old boys club, back to being the little girl in the corner and I won't really get the voice How big I was, have how now. big a um, asset was your naivety in hindsight? <laughs> it was a combination of my absolutely horrendous naivety as a business person and as a person who engages with government or authority of any kind because I have no respect for authority at all and a fairly decent education and experience profile so I kind of was able to carry through what I said I was going to do which I think there's a lot of people who are mavericks in their head but they can't actually complete what they say they're going to do so they didn't have, I, I think that that stood to me. Long may it continue Georgina, or George, sorry. <laughs> Georgina. Uh, George is her brand name. Anyway, that was a, a, a wonderful chat and uh, a great story. Um, wishing you every success in the future with Fumble Exchange and wherever else you may go. And uh, we'll probably see you at home for a cup of tea.